This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry. Episode 13, England Triumphs at Sea. During the 1600s, England was still relatively weak, disunited, unstable, having a relatively small population and modest resources to face its many enemies, the Dutch and the Roman Catholic world. England tried to protect its trade with the Navigation Acts passed by Parliament in 1661, aimed specifically at the Dutch. They said no fish could be brought in by foreigners, meaning the Dutch. The Dutch would be allowed to bring in only their own goods, and all goods directed to English colonies had to pass through England first, even if they were carried in English ships. These measures helped make London a great port. Politically prominent, the city enjoyed a favorable geographical situation with easy riverine access to the sea. Greenwich, with its painted hall, offered a ceremonial access to the realm. The Thames, self-scouring, rarely flooded, and did not ice over. Tension with the Dutch flared into three 17th-century closely-fought wars waged at sea, wars that did not settle anything. Although inconclusive, they were humiliating to the English. The Dutch even sailed up the Thames and captured the English flagship Royal Charles and towed her away. The great Dutch Admiral Tromp supposedly lashed a broom to his mast as a symbol of his determination to sweep the English foe from the seas. The English both admired and despised the Dutch. John Evelyn, the great diarist, wrote candidly, The Dutch exceed us in all things except envy. The English copied Dutch ships, used Dutch water-control techniques to drain the fens in the marshy southeast, borrowed Dutch maps and charts, lured Dutch marine artists to resettle in England, and praised Dutch society. Visitors were impressed by what they saw there, as we have noted. But in other ways, the Dutch come off badly, in popular verse, in matters of commerce, the fault of the Dutch is giving too little and taking too much. Poet Andrew Marvel referred to them as the undigested vomit of the seas. Since having a land frontier to defend put the Dutch at strategic disadvantage, island Britain could flower as the Netherlands faded. The English could dominate oceanic entrances and exits from northern Europe. Choke points, we might say. No Dutch fleet, merchant or naval, could approach or leave the North Atlantic without passing under England's oceanic shadow. 
and the Dutch did not consistently maintain a battle fleet. Within England, the 17th century was a time of tumult, war, and civil war. Nearly a million died in a struggle between monarchy and parliament. The English shocked all of Europe by executing their king, Charles I, in 1649. They created a republic which was followed by a dictatorship, that of Oliver Cromwell. Then they restored the monarchy in 1660, which was followed by plague in 1665 and the Great Fire of London, 1666. Yet, despite all this domestic tumult, with surging overseas trade and merchant fleet, a growing seafaring population, and an extensive oceanic establishment, England, especially the southeast, becomes a major part of the core of an increasing concentration of wealth and power in the North Sea Channel area. This is a core that remains important today. The Navy was strategically of major importance because it was a resource that could not be improvised. This was less true of armies at that time. Thus, all nations that could afford it began to maintain permanent navies. The commitment entailed that world we have already described but becomes increasingly mechanized, a world of docks and shipyards, smithies and gun foundries, with experienced and able craftsmen at work within it. The English develop a particular style of shipbuilding, Ships of high quality with low freeboard, high speed, and maneuverability. The English innovate in casting cannon of cheap iron rather than expensive bronze or brass. Yet, organization is perhaps more important than anything else. The Royal Navy formed a formidable mixture of people skills, and tools, a truly remarkable achievement. Samuel Pepys, the famous diarist, we know him well from that source. The so-called right hand of the Navy did much to create its structure for success in the mid-1600s. The Royal Navy by then was the nation's biggest industrial enterprise, its biggest employer. Pepys was no paragon. A master of office politics, he was adept at vicious infighting, impatient with incompetence, and always ready to impose his own views upon his superiors. He became possessive of the Navy, identifying himself with it and wanting to exercise control. He studied shipbuilding firsthand and took lessons on how to draw ships. Yet actually, he went to sea only several times. His knowledge was not of tides, currents, or winds, 
but of contracts, ledgers, and dockyard layouts. A man of ferocious energy, he had a passion for detail, a keen sense of order and tidiness, as well as responsibility and conscientiousness. He had the ability to get the details right without losing a wider vision, and he had an immense capacity for hard work. He spent long hours at his desk, interrupted only by necessary attention to personal chores, of which he gives homely details in his diary. He liked to visit pubs, to sing as well as to drink. He tells us about taking his wig to the barbers to have it cleaned of lice. And he writes of his favorite diversion, a tireless pursuit of women, about whom he writes in the greatest detail. His ideal targets were married women, since he thought them less likely to have venereal diseases. Pepys sought to bring a spirit of professionalism to all aspects of the Navy, reflecting that seamen were drawn from the dregs of society. He wanted to raise standards of recruitment and training, recalling and hoping to change the old proverb, the sea and the gallows refuse no one. Pepys was mindful of such matters as food, and he paid sedulous attention to his own nourishment. He writes of a meal he enjoyed, half a barrel of oysters, a hash of rabbits, a boiled leg of mutton, three carps in a dish, roasted pigeons, a lamprey pie, and three fruit tarts, as well as good wine of several sorts. All things mighty noble and to my great content. His most famous dictum was perhaps, Englishmen, and more especially seamen, love their bellies above everything else. At Pepys Bar on Pepys Street, near the Tower of London, an anonymous quotation on the wall reads, Fortunate Mr. Pepys, who knows, possesses, and enjoys all that's worth the seeking, let me live among your inclinations, and I shall be happy. From 1650 on, sea power becomes the primary object of all English governments. They could put virtually all their military resources into it, and the English Navy emerges as the world's largest. English sea power achieves a new maturity. The nation underwent revolution in 1688, a benchmark in the modernization of the state, making Parliament supreme over the monarch. A violent popular uprising erupted against an unpopular Roman Catholic king trying to establish monarchical absolutism. In its place, an Anglo-Dutch military invasion brought in William of Orange, a Dutch Protestant, whose mother and wife were English, to ascend the British throne as King William III with his Stuart wife Mary as co-sovereign. This led to a monarchy with limited powers, a more tolerant Church of England, 
and a political economy nourishing the maritime, more attuned to commerce and manufacturing than agriculture. At the turn of the century, around 1700, novelist Daniel Defoe would write prophetically of his fellow countrymen. We are the great wandering, working, colonizing race. The sea, we think, is ours by nature's decree, and on this highway we travel to subdue the earth and to people it. This is prescient, and yet it would not happen until the 19th century and a second phase of oceanic revolution based upon a new machine technology in which Britain pioneered. England benefited after 1500 by its separation from the mainland and its control over the channel at the Dover Straits, sufficiently narrow to intercept hostile ships. And the English proved increasingly able to forestall any continental hegemon, possessing a new strength founded upon the increasing wealth that seaborne trade generated. This rested upon the emergence of the Royal Navy as a permanent, well-organized force to protect that trade and support England's political interests. The English were thus the ultimate winners in the first episode of Oceanic Revolution. It had resulted in a triumph for English trade. A second phase of Oceanic Revolution in the 19th century would create a triumph for British industry. England realized its identity in the Elizabethan age at the turn of the 15th century, and it was closely bound to the sea in all oceanic dimensions as a source of wealth, fishing, as an avenue for coastal and oceanic shipping, supporting commercial expansion, and as an arena for achieving national power and international recognition. Furthermore, in yet another dimension, the ocean served as wellspring for culture in the most profound sense, recreation through adventure and exploration, stimulating the imagination, inspiring artists of all kinds, and in myth-making, establishing a national identity and a secular nationalism. Perhaps we can say that a romantic navalism replaced something of the lost Roman Catholicism with new rituals, new pomp, and new drama, which would flower as part of the splendid apparatus of imperialism. These are rituals that Britons perform superbly and to which they cling stubbornly, even now, when the centuries of power have vanished, forever swept away. Britons also had a competitor in the French, also vying to be a global power. Other Europeans were also engaged. 
Join us next time for episode 14, Britain versus France, as we take a look at this rivalry among maritime states. Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg. Recording by 1623 Studios, Gloucester, Massachusetts. Production and distribution by Albert Buichade Foray. Goodbye until next time.